0: This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. With your host, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes.
1: Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. This week is episode number 556 and our last episode prior to our summer vacation. We've got a great show lined up with Dr. Matt Perzanowski an associate professor at Columbia University. Uh, Recently spent some time with Dr. Perzanowski at the research. uh, Let's see, the research is, his research is focused on understanding exposures that lead to allergic sensitization and asthma. We spent a little time together at a conference at Ohio State University on carpet and indoor air quality, which we'll be talking about a good bit
0: during today's interview. Let's, before we get started, thank our platinum sponsor. IAQ Radio Platinum sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. I also want to thank our
1: gold sponsors, Particles Plus, Healthy Indoors Magazine, Grey Wolf Sensing Solutions, and AEML Inc. Laboratory. And of course, our association sponsors, Siri, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute, the Indoor Air Quality Association, and the Restoration Industry Association. All right, the Z Man is not here today, so I'm going to go ahead and do the trivia question. He did send me one. Uh, You can win a cool prize by out competing fellow IAQ radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer our trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. You can either email it to joe.hughes at IAQ Training, or if you're listening to the show live, text in your answer via your computer. We're sorry to report that no one identified Humphrey Tyler as the publisher whose idea it was to have a cleaning research organization, which resulted in the founding of Siri, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute. The IAQ Radio trivia question for today, Friday, August 2019. Uh, 2019 has been sponsored by Ideas, the solution chemistry company, providing unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problem. Today's trivia question, name the laboratory that first demonstrated the toxic effect of new carpet fumes. Now, all right. So let's go back to today's guest. Uh, Dr. Perzanowski is an associate professor at Columbia University and deputy director of the Center for Environmental Health Sciences in northern Manhattan. His research is focused on understanding exposures that lead to allergic sensitization and asthma. The primary exposures his group is investigating are indoor allergens, combination or combustion byproducts, and fungi. Two other major research aims his laboratory is working on are implementing non invasive measurements of airway inflammation in pediatric population based studies and evaluating the relevance of the hygiene hypothesis to inner city asthma. Hello, Dr. Personowski. Do we have you on? You do. Hi, Joe. How are you? I'm fantastic. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Uh, we spent some time together here at uh, the carpet. Let me get, make sure I've got the right name. The uh, Implications of Carpet on Indoor Chemistry and Microbiology over at The Ohio State University. Uh, it was a nice event put together. Uh, the organizers were uh, Karen Miller and Rachel Adams, uh, both of whom have been on the show in the past. Um, what I really thought was extremely valuable about the way they put this together was they also in addition to the numerous researchers that were there and doing presentations they had industry representatives from the carpet industry and actually there were four or five of them there I believe uh, along with uh, John Donnie from the Cleaning Industry Research Institute I kind of was there sort of representing our practitioner group and uh, I thought that really led to a great interaction between the groups. I mean, after the presentations, they would put us in a little group where we could all talk about things. I'm wondering what your thoughts were, if, if you felt it went as well as I did.
2: I would totally agree. Um, I think that, that was invaluable in terms of the conference. I mean, it was nice that it was a small group, and we had the opportunity to have those small working groups, which in the end represented, you know, four or five people from um, academics, from, the, from, in, from industry, uh, to have these uh, small group discussions based on, to talk about the uh, the uh, presentations that we had heard. And I, I would totally agree that I think having both industry and academics together really led to a, a better conference um, than it would have been without.
1: I think it will also lead to better research in the future. Um, I, uh, what do you think?
2: Absolutely. I mean, if you had, in our small group, when we had uh, the industry representative talking about sort of future practices and what's going on um, in the industry, all the academics were taking notes pretty quickly. I, I think it was it was nice to see. And I think we learned quite a bit uh, about the about about in, about what industry's plans and what they've done in the past with carpets. And I think that kind of interaction can help us better understand the health implications, uh, but then also work with the industry to think about, uh, you know, uh, future directions or improvements or things that can be done.
1: I I got the impression, too, that they they are doing a lot of their own research. And I I don't know how privy or how open they are with that research, but they seemed like they were willing to share whatever they were doing. Uh, Did any of you talk about maybe collaborating or sharing some information?
2: It's a good question. I uh, not in our group we didn't talk about directly comparing information, but but they definitely talked about the the uh, door being open. You know when we have these findings to to talk to them about um, potentially things that we would want to see. You know what 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 are, what are some improvements we can think of uh, within carpets that would be useful? You know for example, I think one of the ones that that came out is is you know. The carpets you know, do trap a lot of particles. If there's a way to prevent resuspension, you know, however that's done, whether that's um, in, in the design of the carpet or the cleaning practices, uh, some way to prevent the resuspension, then in, in the end, you know, you, it could really be a useful way to, to trap particles and, and reduce exposure
1: reducing exposure that's what it's all about huh let's let's john why don't you put up the list of the presentations i'd just like to kind of run down and give listeners who weren't able to attend a little highlight on on what was discussed Uh, the first one i have up here is exposure to resuspended dust from carpet brandon Bohr, uh purdue university dr Bohr actually was on the show and he talked about the the study he did where the baby you know the uh the robot baby kind of bounces along on the carpet and, and they got some idea of what, you know, how much resuspends, what particle size resuspends. And uh, I don't, I I thought that the industry folks were kind of uh, surprised that that had been done. Maybe they didn't, maybe they know, I don't know, but I I, I wanted to get your thoughts.
2: Yeah, I think it's great. I mean, I think we, you know, for for a long time with an uh, environmental exposure studies, we will we, we'll do sort of just air sampling in a room or to try and understand what people are exposed to. But, but that doesn't, that really doesn't do a good job of, mim- of mimicking what, what people are exposed to, especially infants. You know, you think infants, they're, they're not at the same height as adults. They're, they're crawling around on the floor. They're disturbing dust. And so to see, and of course you can't bring infants in to do these kind of studies. Um, so to have a, a mechanized way to, to reproducibly, uh, look for what kind of things are, uh, what kind of particles are resuspended. Is, 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 I got a really cool experiment um, to, to, to examine that.
1: And I guess he found there is a whole lot of resuspension of that dust, and especially for children, because they're, you know, they're, their breathing zone is right there.
2: It's right there, right? You can imagine they're moving their arms around, their, they're on the floor. And he talked a lot about the inhalation, but I, I don't remember who w- was who posed the question. But there's also the... the, the um, the problem of uh, of um, the kids putting hands in, and other things in their mouths, so you can think about exposures coming that way too
1: potential for in, ingestion exposures and, exactly. and that, that was very interesting in fact i, I we'll, we'll come back to that when we get to one of the later presentations. The second one was it was it was really interesting because i I asked a question of Brandon I said, you know well you know we have these studies on resuspension of dust from carpet. what about other surfaces i mean right. there's the same amount of dust on my carpet as there is probably on my hardwood floor, which is in the next room. And uh, lo and behold, Dr. Andrea Farrow came on, and uh, that's exactly kind of what she was talking about, Uh, highlights from her.
2: Yeah, exactly. Showing that the resuspension of particles is greater from the carpets than it is from the smooth surfaces, which I I think, and I'm, I'm not sure I completely understand why that would be, uh maybe it's there's more cleaning that happens in the hardwood floors or um the carpets just store more dust that's that's part of it but but really important to to understand that
1: yeah my question was where does that dust go i mean it, right. same amount of dust fell on that hardwood floor so do we have to look more closely at like you said um the cleaning practices do people clean hardwood more often or more effectively
2: it would seem to me again. This isn't my area of expertise, but it would seem to me that you're you're going to notice the the dust on a hardwood floor a lot easier than you are on a carpet. I would imagine you'd clean more often. At well, least that's what happens at, at my home.
1: And then the type of cleaning is important as well. You know, are you just broom sweeping, or are you using uh, a Swiffer type cleaner or a string mop, uh, which I think you know has been shown, uh, at least as I understand it, to not do as good of a job as as the Swiffers. And then the question becomes, can you launder the Swiffers? I understand they, they lose a lot of their effectiveness when you launder them. So all questions that I'm sure will continue to be addressed by the researchers. Absolutely. All right, let's go to the number three here. And actually, that was you. So what I think we'll do is let's skip over that one for a minute because we're going to come into, go into more detail on your presentation on carpets as an indoor reservoir for asthma triggers for the second half of the show. Let's talk about Dr. Tina Raponen, uh, assessment of fungal sh- exposures by using air versus vacuumed dust samples. That's, that was an interesting presentation as well. I wonder if you could give us some thoughts on that.
2: Sure. And Dr. Raponin has, is really one of the leading experts on fungal exposure and asthma and has done quite a lot of research on environmental exposure to fungi and asthma. And so it was nice to hear her presentation. And, and really, she was examining the different ways that we assess exposure. Um, so the easiest thing for us to do is to go into a home and collect a settled dust sample. We can use a vacuum cleaner with a modified filter. Um, but she was examining some of these. The, we, we, we don't always know that how well what we measure in that settled dust reflects what what people are actually exposed to and so uh we we know that samples like the 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 particles that get into the air uh obviously to be exposed to the respiratory system the particles have to get into the air and so what she was doing was measuring the air uh in the same homes where she was measuring in the dust and was able to show that there was a pretty good concordance between those
1: Mm. okay and um By the way, we also have had Dr. Raponin on in the past. For those of you interested in some of her work, uh, just go to the archives and and check her out. But uh, let's go to the next one, John. All right, number five was the implications of moisture for microbial growth in carpet. And actually, Sarah Haynes from Ohio State presented this, and I think uh, actually when we had Dr. Karen Dannemiller on, who was one of the organizers of this event, she was talking about this topic. And I thought this is a very interesting topic. Um, I think particularly for those of us in the Northeast and the mid-Atlantic states where, in my experience over the last five to ten years, relative humidity seems to be higher longer than ever. And I think the implications of that were kind of shown here in in this presentation by uh, Sarah Haynes. Matt, any comments on this one?
2: Well, I, I think the work that Sarah and uh, and Karen and Rachel are doing around this is, is really quite interesting. To try and understand, you know, for a lot of these studies, we measure which fungi you you detect in the home through the various methods. But ultimately, it's 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 probably not what it, it's in, in as important what's there as as whether they're growing and what they're doing and and what they're producing and the VOCs that they're producing. And so, I think it's really interesting to examine the the impact of humidity on the um, on the exposures on on the on what's coming out of the yeah,
1: and it it appears that uh, from my layman's perspective here that at higher relative humidity you see more gene expression and more potential for these fungi to cause health effects is that accurate to say or
2: certainly there's more gene activity and you would expect that they potentially would then be more likely to cause health effects I think that that remains to be shown directly, I and mean, in terms it probably depends on which VOCs and which which fungi, and uh, what they're producing, but, but the humidity is, is really what drives growth.
1: And you know, that was another thing I found fascinating. There seems to be, and, I, and I'm I'm applauding this, more focus on the VOC side of the equation, as opposed to just... The, the mold and the mycotoxin side of the equation. I, I'm seeing more focus on the VOC side. Did you get that same impression, or is that what you see in the research community?
2: Definitely, and I think actually I think that's where a lot of the uh, exciting research is 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 going towards is trying to assess the VOCs. I think that's been challenging in the research perspective. You know, in other words, like getting a sample from a home, And we have these these devices which you can't bring into the field for the most part, at least the, the larger scale VOC measurements. Um, I think you can do some individual VOCs. But being, being able to, um, to actually assess the VOCs when we think that, that potentially that that's what's causing the health problems. You know, one of the, the, the associations that we see with asthma uh, in studies around the world are, are most strongly associated with um, report of water damage or report of a moldy smell. And so you might expect then that that's, that's related to the VOCs.
1: Or at least that movie smell is an indicator of some kind of activity, metabolism that's leading to these health effects. Sure. And whether it's, and it might be the two combined, I, who knows? I mean, it, it could be some synergistic thing where, you know, people who are uh, in a home with both active VOC production and, you know, uh, molds are, are more likely to, lo- to have health issues. I don't know. I think we'll find out as time goes on.
2: Right, and I think we'll talk about it uh, when we get to my slides, but there's a, you know, within asthma, there's an examination of allergic and non-allergic asthma. And the allergic asthma is clearly going to be triggered by exposure to particles. There are proteins from the fungi that travel on particles. So those aren't the BSCs. But But a lot of the studies have actually shown associations with respiratory symptoms when individuals don't have asthma, and that suggests a non-allergic Mechanism, And so the VOCs could be, could be implicated there.
1: Interesting. All right, let's go to the next one, John. We're doing pretty good here on time. We're getting through these real nice. Uh, um, number six does damp. Oh, there we go. Right into what kind of we were just talking about here. Does dampness increase fungal spore toxicity connecting negative health effects and fungal gene expression? Uh, Dr. Bridget Hegarty, um, University of Michigan I wonder if you could comment on this one for us. Yeah,
2: I thought this was really interesting. And essentially, what she was looking at was gene expression of some of these um, um, target allergens, so the proteins that that produce allergic symptoms in individuals. And was able to show that increasing the dampness did increase the the number of ex- the expression of these proteins that are that are allergens.
1: Yeah, I think that was one of the ones where they had the. I, I I'm not a. Uh, not real good with some of the the, the way you guys present these uh, findings, but it was like a a box with you know um, color changes you know uh, I guess that right. what is that tell me a little more about that if you would
2: so the, the various methods i mean the, one of the challenges with the examining these kind of um, data is that you end up with lots and lots of results so it's no you're no longer looking at whether one fungi was more expressed than another you're looking at say tens or or, or, or hundreds of different um, different proteins or different fungi and so in order to uh, to and you could put those numbers up on a screen but they you know they really it would be really hard to to visually look at that and understand the differences and so that kind of that kind of display of the graphics where you see a color change you can instantly look for patterns and so with her data you're able to see that some of those proteins were were really expressed even at some of the lower humidity levels, while other ones, as the humidity increased, you see you, what you visually saw was a change in color, but what that meant was you're getting a greater expression in the genes.
1: And and I noticed with um, the studies that that were looking at relative humidity related changes, a lot of them were at least at this point in time looking at really high relative humidities. And and I asked one of the researchers afterward, why is that? And he said, Well, we just we haven't gotten to uh, the point where we're looking at, you know, the difference between fifty percent and sixty percent, or sixty and seventy, is that does that sound right?
2: Yeah, that sounds right to me. I mean, again, this isn't my area of expertise, but I would also imagine that the local humidity is important. So, if you're talking about the humidity in the carpet, or you know, behind the wall, or that which which may be really high if you have um, if you have a local water source.
1: That's an, uh, that's important. I didn't think about it that way so th- it's probably not as uncommon to have a higher relative humidity in those areas than in the building itself or the home itself.
2: Well, that's what I was thinking about. So we go into these homes and we put relative humidity monitors and they sit in the home for seven days and so you can track the relative humidity and, and I don't I think in the three hundred and fifty homes we measured, none of them had an average over seventy percent and that, that even was an outlier. But that's not telling you about the humidity in the carpet that's on the floor. If, if someone spilled some water or you've got a leak, um, you know that, that relative humidity locally is going to be much higher.
1: Yeah, or if it's in a basement or on a slab or something like that. Okay, let's go to the next one, John. All right, number seven, I believe. Oh, yeah, uh, Rachel Rush, uh, WVU, identifying fungal exposures and examining their immunological effects with uh, WVU. Can you comment on this one a little bit?
2: Yeah, so Rachel is a PhD student who's working with Brett Green at NIOSH. And, and, um, and they've been looking at some really exciting exposures in uh, population-based studies and then also uh, doing animal studies, experimental studies. And so we've actually been collaborating with them, providing some samples um, and so they, some of the things that one of the, one of the yeasts that they've been looking at, um, because I guess the, the, the examination of the associations between yeast and, and asthma have been less common. Um, and so one of the yeasts that they've been looking at this, um, uh, victoriae, uh, yeast, uh, we actually see is more common in homes uh, with dogs uh, and, and also, uh, appears to be, um. Inversely associated with asthma in a, in our cohort study, so potentially protective. Now, I want to be a little careful about um, how you interpret that, um, mm-hmm. but it, but it's still it's interesting that they're finding. And then they they haven't looked at that specific yeast in them in their mouse studies, but I think that's their plan. But they have been able to look at some of these other fungi in the homes um, that grow in the homes and be able to show clear associations with the development of an allergic pathway.
1: And I got the impression that the yeast are a part of the fungi kingdom that are kind of understudied that we, we, we don't know enough about them at this point.
2: Right yeah, I agree. I think, I think that's a fair um, assessment.
1: And I, I I find that in, um, in the practitioner world, we we do occasionally get yeast in, in sample results, but I don't even know what type it's kind of generalized as a type of yeast. And um, I think it's actually a little difficult to, to uh, without using like a molecular without using dna to 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 actually sample and, and figure out if there are yeast present or not
2: i think that's true
1: okay okay just interesting that that was the point that i had on my notes too that um that yeast has been kind of overlooked in uh in our studies up to this point and that she's looking at that much more carefully all right let's go to the next one there john Number eight. Oh, this was, this was interesting. I don't know how it applies to my practitioner base so much, but it was an interesting presentation. Ozone removal and primary and secondary emissions of aldehydes from carpets by Elliot Gall. I believe Dr. Gall from Portland State University. I guess he's up there with uh, Dr. Corsi now. Any comments on this particular presentation?
2: Well, I thought this was interesting. I didn't. I didn't realize that. So one of the one of his major takeaways was that the uh, carpet can serve as a sink for ozone. It takes ozone out of the air. And I, I mean, I had known. You know, there are many things in in a in a home that can take ozone out of the air. So we often think about ozone. Uh, at least with asthma, as being an outdoor exposure, because once you get inside, a lot of the ozone is absorbed. But what he was showing was the carpet actually, because of its surface area, can be a pretty significant sink for ozone. So we're moving ozone from the air. I think that's important to think about. And then he also showed an interaction where it was more effective at higher humidities. So one of the things I was wondering, you know, ozone is higher in the summertime and And relative humidity also would be higher in the summertime, so I was wondering whether you know maybe this the carpets have an even more beneficial effect uh, in in the summertime where you have high humidity as well as high ozone at least in the indoor environment
1: you know and i I didn't get a chance to ask this question, but i and I don't know if you would know the answer or not, but I was wondering okay is it is it that the ozone is captured by the carpet, or is the ozone reacting with the carpet, and there's some third you know, some other emission as a result?
2: I don't know the answer to that question. Okay. I think it's the latter. I think it's reacting.
1: It's reacting. So even though it may be removing ozone to some degree, what what the byproduct is may be something we're not really uh, interested in having in our homes. So it it just, I guess it lends the, you know, you need more study on that. Um, And I'm sure – if we had uh, – maybe if we'll get, we'll get uh, Dr. Gaw on sometime because I think that would be an interesting question to, to give think,
2: to him. Yeah, I think he'd be an interesting person to interview. All
1: right. Let's go to the next one, John. Number nine. Okay. Interactions between chemistry and microbiology in carpets based on the chem measurements. Uh, this was Powell Mitzel. I hope I got that right, Dr. Mitzel at the University of Texas new to the university, if I recall correctly. Um, I think he was at Berkeley prior. I think that's right. Any thoughts on that particular presentation?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to take a look at my notes here. I mean, I thought it was, in general, an interesting presentation um, about the interactions. And I think ultimately thinking about um, what kind of BOCs are coming off of the carpets and and how the underlying what's growing there can influence that.
1: Yeah. And I have a note here. Something VOCs and new carpet, uh, numerous cyclic, cyclic, aliphatic, aromatic VOCs. I'm not sure why I wrote that down, but it just seemed interesting to me. He was, looking at uh, you know VOCs and then, and then their role with microbial activity, I think we'll have to get him on one of these days too and uh, help him clarify a few of these topics for us.
2: seems like he had a really interesting research uh, uh, agenda.
1: Yes, yes. Let's go to the next one, John. Oh, before we do, I did have one key note from that one, that relative humidity is is the critical factor, I think, affecting VOC offgassing. So
2: Right. No, that was a good point. Yeah, that, that was really important.
1: Okay. So let's go to number 10, the implications of carpet and textiles on indoor chemistry. Um, Dr. Glenn Morrison, who has now moved over to the University of North Carolina. We've had Glenn on the show in the past, and uh, he's always an interesting presenter. Uh, I had that they were a huge sink that may be able to be used to help IAQ if we do it in the right way. that I found that interesting that that um, indoor air quality researchers were kind of looking at carpet in a little different light maybe. I, I, did you get that feeling?
2: Yeah, I thought that was a really interesting direction. I have to say that, you know, from the, the asthma field, we just think about it as, you know, holding particles or potentially things growing in the carpets. And so, you know, in general, a risk. But if you start to think about it as something that actually is trapping from the ozone or the other chemicals and maybe the particles, in a way, I mean, it seems to me like the the discussions that I was part of the, sort of conceptualizing the ideal carpet would actually be one that trapped a bunch of particles and, and gases, and then you could somehow clean and then uh, get rid of, you know, take those, those things out of your house. And so I thought this was an interesting... Uh, an interesting presentation that added to that.
1: Somebody also mentioned um, somewhere along the line that, that carpet affects comfort, and I, and I live in a cold climate up here in the uh, mountains of Pennsylvania, and I I just can't have hard surfaces everywhere. I've got to have a little carpet under my feet from time to time. I I find that the the key is though the cleaning and the maintenance of it is vital. And so maybe we have to be kind of choosy about where we put carpet and who has carpet because some groups are going to be more likely to maintain it properly. Others maybe aren't, you know, maybe they don't have the money to have uh, carpet cleaning done um, annually or at least semi annually uh, or semi annually or at least annually. What, what are your thoughts on that?
2: Right. I what I think maybe even a better understanding of how often to clean or where to clean. And one of the, the carpet um, industry, um, uh, individuals was talking about you know understanding where the traffic is, where the where is the dirt going, and ultimately, at least with the work that we do, we're not so interested in the dirt per se. We're interested in the individual particles that come from dust mites or cats or dogs. So understanding where those particles go and how you would clean and how often you need to clean, maybe even you know some sort of sensor to let you know it needs that cleaning needs to be done. And in terms of the, the comfort, I'd also add you know there are other components like in an urban environment you know having having carpeted uh floors if you're you know in the basement or the second floor in a 50 floor apartment building you want people above you to have carpeting right it reduces noise you don't you don't hear them banging around as much
1: absolutely and it's it's a somewhat inexpensive type of floor covering as well when compared to things like you know uh ceramic or, or you know slate or other uh, types of floor covering can be pretty expensive to hardwood uh, you know i think comparably they are probably more expensive at least when you take into consideration the installation cost the materials may not be that much more but the installation cost can be much more so those are all things i think we need to take into consideration when making these recommendations now. You know, I hear all the time that we should not have carpet in indoor environments, uh, that, that it's bad for indoor air quality. But I, I sometimes think that's an oversimplification of the, you know, of that topic.
2: Yeah, it seems like I mean, we, we know that they can serve as reservoirs for things that, that can cause disease. So I think we need to be careful with that. But, but you know, hearing about some of these other implications where they're removing or, or holding um, uh, exposures we think are important. Uh, it, it's worth uh reconsidering and thinking about it all
1: right john let's go one more at least before we break for halftime here what's next up on that list there we go all right the fundamentals of carpet care john donnie who has been a uh, a, a pretty frequent actually uh, guest on the show here i'm just curious how did that Presentation go over with the uh, research community.
2: Well, it's interesting to hear that perspective and to understand sort of what the what the industry thinks um, has to be done in terms of cleaning carpet. So I thought it was it was an an interesting uh, interesting presentation.
1: As a multi generational carpet cleaner, um, John has his own you know thoughts about whether people should have carpet in their homes or not, and rugs as well. Right, I thought it went over real well. Uh, I was kind of surprised. I would agree. All right, next one up, John. Let's do one more. Why not? Maybe we could finish these. Actually, there's only a couple left, and then we'll get the second half. We'll go toward. Uh, there we go. Oh yeah, yeah. This was interesting. Carpet issues with biocontamination incidents. Not. It's an indoor air quality issue, but an uncommon one. This was uh, Paul Lemieux from EPA, and he was talking about the anthrax uh, issue that and and how difficult it was to get. To kill the anthrax in carpet, I wonder what your thoughts were on his presentation.
0: Well,
2: I found it a little scary. <laughs> <laughs> but, right, but the idea was, uh, you know, with with the anthrax, um, they, they weren't they were had a really difficult time in terms of killing it. So when they were autoclaving, uh, you know, which is a typical way to, to sterilize, they would have to autoclave the carp- the carpets twice because. Um otherwise they they weren't, weren't able to kill things in the carpet and I, yeah, and I think his other his other takeaway was if there were some other event um that then it would be it would lead there would, would be quite a lot uh to do to get rid of the carpets uh, in in wherever that had happened,
1: yeah, and he mentioned how difficult it was to dispose of them as hazardous waste, for instance, and there's a lot of bulk there, so that could get really expensive real quick,
2: yeah, absolutely.
1: Let's go to the next one, John. Why, why don't we try and wrap these up real quick before we go to halftime? Uh, industry perspective on carpet from Shaw. Actually, Troy Virgo wasn't there, and I don't know if I wrote down the uh, the, the lady who did their presentation. She was very interesting. Um, I don't seem to have it in my notes here, but I'm wondering what your thoughts were uh, on her presentation.
2: Again, it was. It's really interesting to, as an academic, to get the perspective from the industry and and hear uh, what kind of things they're working on. And she talked a lot about how the carpet industry now is, is moving towards the flooring industry and how, you know, they're thinking about all these different types of, of surfaces. and also had shown how there, there had been a decrease in carpets over the past, especially over the past 10 years, people moving to more smooth floors. So I think it's important to think about the implications of that. Um,
1: but Very, she did a nice job. And I, I, I guess, the thing that I take took away from it was that the, the carpet industry does a lot of research. I mean, they, they know their product. They know what it does and what it off-gases and, uh, you know, what the pros and cons are. And, and they seemed willing to share. So uh, I thought that was nice to see. Let's go to fungal allergen exposures, Elliot Horner. Dr. Horner, who also well, I didn't realize about half of these folks have been on the show at one time or another. But uh, any takeaways from uh, what Elliot presented?
2: Well, he's always I always enjoy Elliot's presentations. He's, he's always talking about something interesting. So I, yeah, it was nice to hear about his his discussion about um, uh, about the sort of long term issues of, of uh, carpet and fungal exposure.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I I had some notes on Elliot here, but uh, we're running a little low on time, so I think we better move on to the next one because this one was one that really caught my attention. I was not very aware of this issue, so it was a perspective from the Green Science Policy Institute on Improvements for Carpet, Tom Bruton, and um, he was talking about, uh, what was the, Maybe you could I, I can't yeah, remember the,
2: the PFO the, 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 the fluorinated compounds uh, yeah. essentially they were just talking about different chemicals in the environment that they were trying to make people aware of um, that they, that they would, would be better if we weren't exposed to and so I thought he gave a really nice presentation uh, about about their how they would target these different chemicals um, to try and get them out of the out out of products or it, it, not a, not a necessarily um, to to ban them, but to um, have industry move towards not using them um, so that, so that that people aren't being exposed. And, uh, and I thought that, you know, in, in talking with some of the industry people, they had said, you know, this is an effective way in part when you have some, uh, a a commercial industry, a, a big component is about educating the consumer so they know what they're looking for. And so if they're aware that what they want is to, to have, uh, carpets without the PFOAs in it, that, that helps sell. And if they don't know that, then they may just be looking for carpets that, you know, just looking based on aesthetics.
1: Yeah, this was on highly fluorinated chemicals. And I, I guess those are more of a, an, an ingestion issue for, for young kids, maybe, as they rub their hands on the carpet, or do they also um, have, a, is there also an inhalation issue there?
2: I'm, I'm not positive. I think it's ingestion. But, yeah,
1: it seemed like semi-volatiles um, that that would be, and I I wasn't even aware of the issue, but the carpet people sure were, and they were they were very upfront about the fact that they were moving toward removing them as quickly as possible. They right. also also interesting to note the pipeline for doing that is a lot longer than I certainly thought. Right, uh, right. they were talking maybe fifteen years before every you know, if they wanted to get rid of them all tomorrow, it might take 15 years before they were all out of that pipeline.
2: That was to me, one of the really important, useful takeaways, you know, as, a, as an academic and thinking about the interventions and how you would go through this. And it's not just about, it's not just about the length of time that someone keeps a carpet in their home and replaces it. It's also goes back to the manufacturing and then the, the, um, the, the, the retailers who have the carpets and then how long length they have the, the stock and all those things that make it a pretty long period of time for turnaround.
1: Yeah, that was really an interesting key point, I think, from that one. Let's go to the last one. I think we had maybe one more, John. Oh, yeah, yeah. Future directions for healthy homes and carpet-related research. Dr. David Jacobs. David, I've got to get him on the show. Fascinating guy. Um, He was talking a little bit about the World Health Organization's Housing and Health Guidelines, and that uh, the National Center for Healthy Housing also had some carpet guidance, which I've got to pull up. Any key points you uh, recall from Dr. Jacobs' presentation?
2: Well, what I really liked is what he put together. You know, two of the big challenges um, that we face here in the United States are related to health care costs um, and also have been related to housing issues, right? And, and that both of those have a confluence um, in, in these, in these health issues. And so trying to think about them more holistically and how we deal with that going forward is important.
1: Excellent point. I'm glad, glad you brought that up. Listen, we've got to stop and thank our sponsors. We're going to thank our sponsors for 90 seconds. I want you to stick around though, because the second half of the show, we're going to go into more detail on Dr. Perzanowski's presentation yesterday. And I think it might give you a little different, uh, a little different, Thought on, on asthma and how how we look at asthma uh, when we're dealing with indoor environments. We'll be back in ninety seconds.
0: IAQ Radio Platinum Sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at JohnDon.com. That's J-O-N D-O-N.com. Association sponsors are the Indoor Air Quality Association, a multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Learn more at iaqa.org and RIA. The Restoration Industry Association, the granddaddy of the restoration industry. Network with leaders. Learn more at restorationindustry.org. Siri the Cleaning Industry
1: Research Institute. See more deeply through science and research. Learn more at siriscience.org. That's ciri-science.org. That's C-I-R-I science.org. All right. We're back for the second half of our interview. We've got Dr. Matt Persanowski from Columbia University. And, uh, you know, I forgot to ask at the beginning of the show, how did you get so involved in the, you know, the indoor air quality world at, and, and at the university there and, and then your work with asthma? Is that something that came, you know, while you were in school or is it something you were always interested? Yeah,
2: you know, really came with my first job after graduating from college. I started working in a laboratory uh, where they researched asthma. And to be honest, I, I didn't know anything about asthma before that. I didn't have any experiences with it. And it was a really intriguing challenge, a really intriguing problem. The, the, the prevalence of asthma um, started increasing uh, in the United States and other places in the world in the 1960s and really dramatically increased in the 1980s. Um, so that it's become a, a major, major health problem. And in large part, we don't understand the reason for that increase. There's been a lot of research, and we have some um, some understanding now, more understanding about why it's increased. But it's just been a really complicated problem to understand. But what's clear is the indoor environment is one of the drivers, um, exposures in the indoor environment is one of the drivers of, of that increase in
1: asthma. It's only going to be more and more of a driver. The indoor generation is here. Uh, well, these folks don't ever leave the indoor environments. It's, it's very interesting. The other thing is I had a text question um, during the first half about explaining how humidity, relative humidity, affects carpet off-gassing at what levels of RH or what ranges. I don't know if that was your area of expertise or not, but I thought I'd throw it out there.
2: Yeah, that that's one. I'm sorry, I can't answer. Uh, I did find that that was an intriguing, um, intriguing finding that was presented, but but I, yeah, I don't I don't know the chemistry behind that.
1: Well, I'm sure we'll be following up on that a little bit with uh, Dr. Dana Miller. I think that's her area, um, and she'll be a keynote at the Healthy Building Summit 2019, October 16 to 18 at Seven Springs. So get that in real quick. All right, uh, let's jump over. Oh, by the way, one other thing that I wanted to mention. And I think you agreed with this, was that, you know, it seemed like most of the research is looking at carpet. And there was very little discussion of the carpet backing, the carpet pad, what type of substrate it was on. And I'm wondering if, if that's accurate to say or if there's more going on than I realize
2: I, I don't. I don't know. Again, I don't know about what what research is going on, but it does seem like that would be important. I don't know how important that is for the particle resuspension, but it seems like for the chemistry and for the growth of the microbes that would be important. Um, and I don't. I didn't hear much discussed at the meeting, um, so I don't know if there's ongoing research. But it seems like it certainly would be something that would be worth looking into.
1: Absolutely. I, when I tear out my my son has a little construction company. When you tear out old carpet, the the backings in some cases have just fallen apart, disintegrated into very small particle pieces. And I I suspect they um, the older the carpet is, the more disintegration there has been, the higher the particulate loads are going to be in that home. But I don't think there's been any research on that that, that I'm aware of. So no, it'd
2: be interesting to
1: Let's go to uh, the slides, John, and and you did this in twelve minutes somehow at the conference. <laughs> I don't know pulled off here or not, but uh, let's let's go ahead. All right. So we were talking about uh, carpets being an indoor reservoir for asthma triggers. Let's go to the next one. Let's first talk a little bit about what is asthma. I think many of our listeners are somewhat familiar with asthma, but I think you did a nice job of explaining this.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, I think we, we all, under, many people understand what asthma does, how it affects individuals. It makes it difficult for them to get air in and out of their lungs. And what I just talked a little bit about, the cause of that, the underlying um, biological cause is, in, in part, you have smooth muscles, wrapped around the airways, so this on your on your right you can see these airways that's just how you get air in and out of the lungs and that smooth muscle can constrict it makes the airway smaller so it's just you know just like a pipe getting smaller it makes it more difficult to get air in and out but also there's an inflammatory component to asthma so some individuals have inflammation so that's like you can imagine cells or um, mucus or other things when you think about inflammation um, that happens in the airways, and it makes air di- it makes it difficult to get air in and out of the lungs.
1: Okay, next slide, John.
0: So, all right, interesting it, here.
1: Yeah, so what I mentioned
2: before was there's been this dramatic increase in asthma, so on, uh, in asthma prevalence around the world. So on the left, you can see this timeline from the 1960s to the mid-2000s, and you don't worry about all the detail, but you can just generally look at it, and you see that for most places, asthma is increasing. And all, and, but there's quite a lot of variability between countries, um, between in, uh, uh, communities. And, and interestingly, we see that even within a city. So I, I've been doing my research in New York City since 2002, and I was struck by this map. Um, that the New York City Department of Health put together, and I, I recreated it here. And what it's showing is a five-year-old kid, when they go to school, just like everywhere else, they're asked about, their parents are asked about questions about uh, different diseases, and one of them they're asked about is asthma. So it's a pretty good way to get the population um, prevalence of asthma. And you can see that within New York City, asthma prevalence varies from around 3% to almost 19%. So huge differences in risk. Um, and the darkest um, uh, components there right, are right in the middle of Manhattan and the South Bronx. And those neighborhoods have close to a 19% asthma. And what's really, so at 19, about one in five kids have asthma by age five. And you look, some of the other neighborhoods are much lower. And so we're trying to use that as a way to understand what it is about the environment, the indoor environment or the outdoor environment. Mostly, the, mostly what it suggests is that it's probably a lot of indoor environment. Um, because the outdoor environment, a lot of the air pollutants, we think about, are going to be more evenly distributed throughout the city.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I noticed the, the list on the, uh, of the prevalence of asthma as the different countries. Those are all pretty much developed countries. Is it similar in, you know, uh, third world, less developed countries?
2: No, that's really, really interesting, too. You know, one of the things that we see that is a risk factor for asthma increasing, say, especially in the 1960s, 1970s, was it was in what we think of as the more westernized country. And the less westernized, less so. Now, what we're seeing is in some of the other countries, uh, in developing countries, so there's some of these good studies in in Africa showing uh, in Kenya and in Ghana, um, increases in asthma in the past 20 years. Uh, and in China as well. Uh, I, uh, uh, I was in a, at a conference in Shanghai and they've shown an increase of uh, past 20 years of asthma going from around 2 percent to up to 10 percent. And when you think about a, a city of 20 million people, that's a, that's a lot of asthma cases.
1: A lot of people. Let's go to the next one, John. I thought the way you described this and, and separated out the types of, of asthma was fascinating. Let's, let's uh, have you talk a little more on this particular slide.
2: Sure. So one of the really complicated things about asthma that we've realized in the past, especially in the, in the past 10 years or more, is that asthma is not one disease. Um, it has the same outcome. Again, the 10- the airways narrow and it's difficult to get air in and out of the lungs, but it probably has multiple different causes. And so this is just a, it's a complicated figure, but, it, but it's trying to highlight the different types of asthma. So, for example, you have allergic asthma, um, but we also have asthma that's not triggered by, by allergies, so like aspirin um, sensitive. And so when you start to think about things like, well, what's the relevance of having a carpet in the home that has dust mites in it? that could be really relevant for someone who has allergic asthma. But if their cause is aspirin sensitive or, or obesity related, the dust mites might, might not matter at all. Hmm.
1: Next one, John. Okay. This is another uh, interesting slide that you presented here, but let's, let's talk a little bit about this one.
2: So we know that the development of asthma involves multiple steps. We know that if you, are, if you have a, a parent with asthma, uh, then you are more likely to have asthma, so there's a genetic component. Um, for allergic asthma, first develop um, allergic sensitization, and that's pretty common. That's probably um, half of a population. You know, if you were to skin test or measure antibodies in your listeners, probably half of them would have antibodies to something like cats or dogs or dust mites. But not all of them would have an allergic disease. So among those who are sensitized, some develop allergic asthma. Um, And then ultimately, asthma is the disease of exacerbation. If you have asthma, but you don't have exacerbations very often, say once a year, that's much less relevant to you if you have exacerbations every day. And so the importance of this figure, though, is trying to say that at each of these steps, so going to being allergic, for, to having asthma, to having exacerbation, there are be there different exposures that are relevant. So it could be that that dust light exposure is really important for developing sensitization and really important for exacerbation, but not for these other components.
1: Okay. And then there are also multiple concurrent exposures, which is also important.
2: If, as if, if it weren't confusing enough – <laughs> um, different phenotypes, then you've got, we think we, we know that it's multiple exposures that are important. So what we had seen in New York City, um, and, and that's actually on the next slide, uh, is um, this is a little complicated to go through, but we, we're looking at the interaction between two things, between combustion byproducts and and cockroach allergens. So being allergic to cockroach is really a, a, a big risk factor for developing asthma in an urban environment, and so this is a study where we recruited um, we recruited moms during pregnancy, and we went to their homes and we collected dust that we brought back to the lab and measured cockroach allergen. So that's what's on the axis on the bottom on the x-axis, where it says g 2 that's cockroach allergen, um, and then. We also had the moms wear a backpack. And in that, with that backpack, we measured, um, we measured combustion-related byproducts called polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. That's a much more simpler way to think about that is that soot, right? So the black soot that comes from burning diesel or burning heating oil. In New York City, if you run your finger on the windowsill, it comes up black. And that's because of the diesel exhaust and the, the heating oil. So we looked at, at moms where there was higher um, of that, amounts of that soot and lower amounts of that soot. And we found that um, you can see on the, on the left, it's looking at the association where how much cockroach allergen was in their, in their bed dust and whether they, whether they developed allergy to cockroach by the time they reached school age. And so you can see that's a pretty flat line. Uh, so among those kids where there wasn't a high amount of combustion exposure, we didn't see any association between exposure to cockroach allergen and developing allergy to cockroach. Now, shift over on the right. Those are the moms where there's more combustion exposure. There, you see a really clear association. If you have more cockroach allergen in the dust, the kids are more likely to develop allergy to cockroach. So, again, it's stepping back. It's, it's complicated, right? It's, you've got this combination where you, it's not only having the cockroach, but it's also having the combustion byproducts. But that might help us explain why that map of New York City, of the asthma prevalence. You know, the neighborhoods where you have higher asthma prevalence are the poorer neighborhoods. Where you have cockroach uh, is, is more difficult to control because you live in multifamily building apartments, and so you may be able to control the cockroaches in your home, but if your neighbor doesn't, then the allergen going to end up in your home too. Right? So you've got have that going on, but then you also have the buildings burning this, this heavy oil um, or the bus uh, depots or other combustion sources, and they may combine to lead to more risk in those neighborhoods.
1: Interesting. And then that, uh, you also have whether the type of asthma that the person has, right? Is that also right. a deal? Well, and
2: and again, not not to try and make this as complicated as possible, but here we're just looking at the development of allergy in the first place, right? So just that first step on that that, um – on the diagram I was showing before. So then other things may be important for asthma. And so getting back to this idea, I think I mentioned at the beginning that one of the reasons I've been intrigued with working on asthma, in addition, of course, the, the public health implication, it's a, it's a disease that affects a lot of children and families, uh, but, and, but it's also complicated and it's challenging and we haven't yet completely figured out why asthma is so common. And it may be because of these, right? I mean, it's multiple diseases, it's multiple interactions, and it's multiple steps in a pathway.
1: Very interesting. Next slide, John. Here we go. And then you have the issue of where the particles may, uh, the the deposition in the lungs.
2: Yeah. And I would imagine that, that your audience is familiar with this kind of idea, this concept that, you know, the bigger particles, of course, the really big particles aren't going to make it into the air but the the sort of medium sized particles, the nose is a really good way to filter these particles out. So that the, so so those particles won't make it very far into the airways. But the really small particles can make it far down into the airways, down in into that that those areas where I was showing a of the smooth muscle, um, and so they can be really important for asthma.
1: Okay, next one, John. Here we go. The major allergen associated with asthma. Let's let's talk a little bit about dust mites.
2: So dust mites are just microscopic. You can't see them very well with the naked eye. They live in bedding. Um, they live. In, they also live in carpets. They feed off of human skin scales and uh, and and they um and they take in water from the air. So they need a relatively high humidity. Um, they are common in many parts of the world where you have that relative high humidity, and they became more common. As we developed tighter homes, we started sealing up our homes in the 1970s and 80s and making them um, um, a little warmer and more humid then the dust might start to increase. Really and it, and for a while, that was actually to be one of the reasons that asthma was increasing, especially in places like England or Australia, um, where homes were going from being pretty cold and 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 not as uh, damp to being pretty tight uh, and and then and also humid. Uh, and, and, and warm. And so um, the dust mites can live in the carpets. Uh, so, so interventions against dust mites have gone back more than 30 years, and sometimes to remove carpets, sometimes to use um, these acaricides, which will kill the dust mites, uh, uh, as well as targeting mattresses and other places.
1: So that carpet, that older carpet may not just have dust mite, and it may also have some kind of pesticide used to try and get rid of those dust mites many years ago. If someone, yeah, if someone was using them. All right. Next up, here we go. Now, this was an interesting one here: dust versus airborne dust mite and cat allergen in homes undisturbed. Tell listeners what they're looking at here.
2: Yeah. So we again to make it more complicated, the the particles that that carry these different allergens, like dust mites, and this is just looking at dust mites and cats, are also different. And what we see is that dust mite allergen travels on pretty large particles. So this is a study where they, they vacuumed um, a home and, and measured the allergens in it, and they also had an, an air filter collecting particles at the same time. And what they were able to show is dust light. Across this range of dust light allergens, you can see some of those homes have a lot of allergen in their dust. That's the x-axis. But on the y-axis, you see no allergen. And that's because these particles just don't get aerosolized unless you vacuum or you walk across the carpet, or you—you know—you can make them aerosolized. But it has implications for exposure. It means you're not going to be as easily exposed unless you're disturbing the air or disturbing the, the surface. Whereas cat allergen, you know, you can see what's measured in the floor is, is uh, pretty well correlated with what's measured in the air. And it doesn't matter whether you're disturbing it or not. So those, those particles stay, stay, um, stay airborne uh, pretty, for a pretty long time. And I imagine that if any of your listeners are allergic to cats, they know this already. And you probably know someone. They walk into a room, a house, they know if there's a cat there, whether they see that cat or not. And that's because those particles are in the air.
1: And these these are specific to carpeted areas, right? Or is that just dust mite and floor dust on any type of floor?
2: I think with this study, this was um, it was it was any type of floor. But I would imagine that if you this I, this came from Virginia, and I think a lot of the floors were carpeted
1: or had rugs. All right, let's go to the next one, John. All right. Neighborhood asthma prevalence and fungal diversity, a univariate analysis. Tell listeners a little bit about what this is.
2: So this on the left is a map of New York City. Um, I, we sampled 350 homes in New York City, so we went and collected dust samples. And then we processed those samples to look at the the the, the fungal communities in those. So this is... Um, this is a, a, a more advanced way of looking at um, using a DNA-based method to look at different molds in the homes. And so you get, uh, you get you know, up to you know, over 1,000 different species that are detected. And you can use that to say um, which, which, com- which homes have a more diverse amount of fungi. And I, I won't get into the, the details of that calculation, but essentially you can think about it as who has more types of things growing in their home. And are they how, how representative they, are they? And what we actually see is that, you know, across those neighborhoods, we have higher and lower asthma prevalence. The neighborhoods which which have a higher prevalence of asthma actually have um an, a decrease in fungal diversity. And so it implies some sort of protection of of this uh, more diverse community. I want to be careful with that because we don't we don't fully understand that uh, why that would be. Um, there there is some implication in 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 asthma research over the past 20 years that having more microbes around, not the ones that cause disease, but sort of the ones that don't cause disease might be protective in the development of allergy.
1: Yeah. That seems to be a recurring uh, theme that I I hear in, in in current research that the diversity may be more important than, than anything, but uh, that we've got to be careful saying that for certain.
2: Right. And I think what you we don't know is, is the diversity protective because you know all these all these species compete with each other the, the fungi compete with the bacteria and, and, and does this high diversity just reflects like a healthy community in in your environment you know no home is going to be without mold and bacteria so does this reflect a sort of a healthy environment and then when you see less diversity is it because something more um, pathogenic or, or dangerous or you know causing uh, ill health is is growing there and that's what you're seeing but But that's where a lot of research is going
1: now. John, let's go to the next one.
2: This is just trying to say that that diversity in, in New York City is really driven by the type of building that you live in and whether you have a carpet on the floor or not, or at least when what we were. Now, we were collecting these samples from the floor, so the carpet really uh, is the source of the dust in homes where you have a carpet, and showing that we get greater fungal diversity um, in homes with carpets and greater fungal diversity in the, the non-apartment buildings. Hmm.
1: So homes with carpet did have a greater fungal diversity.
2: Was it was one of the best predictors of fungal diversity. It, that's, it may not appear as much on this figure here, but that's that's a big difference between
1: Any those. thoughts on why.
2: I mean, I imagine that they're just good at good at growing different fungi. Um, you know, they, they, it provides a source for for the dust, uh, uh, the spores, and, and maybe maybe it changes. It helps with the humidity. I don't. I don't know.
1: Are these? All, I guess that's a question I had from earlier. Are these all? Viable, culturable fungi that we're we're looking at, or is it just everything in in that dust?
2: Yeah, it's everything in the dust. This has nothing to do with um, whether it could be cultured or not, or we don't know if it's viable.
1: It's 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 a
2: DNA based methods.
1: All right, John. So this. Triggers. Yeah, this is interesting.
2: Yeah, just other other specific triggers that we've been, that have been measured in dust. So, you know, back to the PAHs, those polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, the soot-related particles we were talking about before, they've been measured in dust. They don't come from there, probably, um, They, but they can be uh, re-sus, you know, resuspended uh, into the air. Same with phthalates. Um, the the DEHP um, has been measured in homes with carpets, and it's been associated with asthma. Now, what's important to point out, and the industry um, again, it was nice well, it was nice to have the industry there. So they they said that in the residential carpets, they don't use phthalates, and so the. The the source of this is not the carpet. The original source of this is not the carpet. It's it's somehow getting into the carpet. And back to some of those talks about the carpet serving as for some of these chemicals and particles. that um, then then they can be suspended. But the source is not
1: the would it would the source be maybe the other furnishings in the home? Possibly because
2: the phthalates are, are really ubiquitous in the environment now because okay. they're in all sorts of any any plastic they soften plastics or any uh manufactured smell like uh you know an air freshener um those those all have phthalates in
1: them. okay okay that makes sense all right let's go to the next one carpets and indoor reservoir again for asthma triggers it's uh Go through these po- points real quick here. Yeah,
2: so this, just, to, just to summarize, um, you know, what I had been talking about, this is, The, the, the asthma is not one disease, and we're, we're increasingly understanding that, and that means that some individuals are going to be susceptible to environmental exposures that others are not, and it's really important for us to understand, you know, what the triggers are for an individual, and then think about how we intervene. Um, these multiple exposures act synergistically, so I gave the example of the... The combustion, the soot-related uh, particles, along with cockroach, being important for developing allergy. The 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 upside of that means that you know maybe if we intervene on one of these, we can reduce asthma symptoms. So intervening on the air pollution might be effective in reducing cockroach allergy. Hmm. Uh, particle size is really important, um, both for exposure, you know, getting into the air, and also where it deposits in the lung. Uh, It's clear that carpets can serve as a reservoir for things that are allergen triggers. They can also serve as a a reservoir for things that produce allergens like dust mites and fungi. And then um, lastly, the resuspension of the allergen triggers is really important, especially when you think about things like vacuum cleaners or other, other components that could be um, getting things into the air.
1: Very interesting. All right. I think that, is that the last one there, John? And then just some acknowledgements. Of course, you want to make sure we acknowledge the, the funders and so forth, and uh, your collaborators on this, and uh, I, I kind of wanted to ask one more question. If we could, uh, do you have another minute? Sure. I, what I, you know, you're you're interacting with all these researchers and dealing with uh, you know a very uh, highly populated urban environment, and I'm just wondering, what are the what do you see as the future indoor air quality? contaminants or concerns that our listeners should be aware of and should be um, maybe educating themselves on a little more?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I think, at least within asthma, where we're going, we understand allergens, we understand they're important. So I think how those particles, um, how people are exposed to those particles is important. I think that's the relevance of the carpets. You know, do they serve as reservoirs, or could they serve as sinks? Um, uh, but how, how do they get resuppended? I think the emerging issues are probably more around the other chemicals in the environment. So the phthalates um, have become much more ubiquitous um, in the past uh, 30, 40 years, kind of in line. With, I, don't, I don't think they were the cause, but they, they did certainly increased at the same time that asthma has been thing. Um, And so it's important to think about how those exposures are, are um, found in the environment. And, and understanding, you know, outside of asthma, um, how they those chemicals may be related to other diseases, thinking about how we we don't bring those into the indoor environment
0: have you
1: been looking much at the fire retardants and that issue with respect to any connections with asthma
2: I'm not aware of any connection with asthma it's clearly they've been associated with um, neurodevelopment issues mm-hmm. and so we have some researchers here at columbia who've been who have been looking at that. I think that's a a really fascinating story unfortunately, you know that now everyone is exposed to those. Um, those uh, flame retardants, but, but it seems like it, they're, they're being removed.
1: Okay. And now uh, before we go, we always like to ask, is there anything that we missed that you'd like to add or any final comments?
2: Well, just that I really, I've, I've enjoyed this. again, I, I thought the conference that was put together was a really interesting um, discussion um, between academics and industry and around the future issues of carpet and the health implications. And, and so it's been nice to be able to talk about that with you today.
1: It was, and it was a great, a great mix, and uh, the the hosts were just fantastic. A beautiful campus there at Ohio State, the Ohio State University. Right. And, uh, we we had a great time. I want to thank today's guest, Dr. Matt Persanowski, for joining us today on our pre IAQ Radio summer break finale. So thank you so much for joining us. I hope we can get you back sometime and talk a little more about some of your other research. Uh, over the years, and uh, certainly look forward to seeing you at some conferences down the road. Sounds great, thank you. All right, so this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks so much to today's guest, to my co host, the Z Man, who could not make it today, but will be back when we get back from vacation. To John, you gotta have faith that the controls. Most importantly, to our growing group of loyal listeners, don't forget about the Healthy Building Summit, October 16 to 18 here in beautiful uh, Somerset, Pennsylvania at Seven Springs Resort. We'll be back before that, though, with the next episode of IAQ Radio. So, And uh, we'll keep in touch by constant contact over the holiday here or over our summer break. And uh, we'll be back the first Friday in September with the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus.
0: For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reel saying thanks for listening. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the
2: deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office.